This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. I've heard it all day, like thoughts and prayers. And you just heard Sheriff and Jonathan Allen say, like, all we can do is pray for him. And it's just on my heart that I want to pray for It him. is. Demar Hamlin, right, right, right now. God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand, that are hard, uh, because we believe that you're God and coming to you and praying to you um, has impact. We're, we're sad, we're angry, um, and we want answers, but some things are unanswerable. We just want to pray, truly come to you and pray for strength for Damar, for healing for Damar, for comfort for Damar, to be with his family, to give them peace. If we didn't believe that prayer didn't work, we wouldn't ask this of you, God. I believe in prayer. We believe in prayer. We lift up Damar Hamlin's name in your name. Amen. 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 That's ESPN announcer Dan Orlovsky. Praying on the set after the cardiac arrest of pro football player DeMar Hamlin during a game between the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals. He wasn't the only one praying. In the days that followed, entire NFL teams took a knee and prayed before the game out in the middle of the field. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is senior fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Why do you think this case got so much attention? Well, there's one thing you can say about Monday Night Football, which is it's the only game on. So I think what we're dealing with here is the undeniable power of video, and specifically live video. This isn't a clip that surfaced later. This was the entire NFL watching a game with incredible playoff implications. So the entire NFL is watching this, which means the entire league is sitting in front of TV screens with their smartphones in their hands. And it was impossible to ignore the explosion of social media from NFL players, coaches, analysts, etc. And a large part of that was about what was happening, of course, but another was an instant appeal to prayer because it became very apparent what was happening on that field at the level of players beginning to pray, people in the stands beginning to pray, people online beginning to pray. There was no way around it. So this was a case where the National Football League was not going to be able to wave a magic wand and make prayer go away. Now, I make the sarcastic comment about the wand because this is a story that I've been covering as an official old guy I've been covering it since the mid-1980s when the whole idea of prayer circles after games involving players from both teams, some of the Christian ministries involved in the NFL, and simply the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which functions at every single level of almost all team sports. You used to see, if you're old enough like I am, you used to see these circles on TV screens at the end of NFL games. 
you would see shots on the sideline. They would be interviewing someone. And in the background, you would see players from both teams meeting on the field to huddle up and pray. And then these images vanished from NFL game broadcasts. And I began calling around as a reporter. I began calling around trying to figure out what had happened. And what I never got anybody to say on the record was what many people said off the record, which was the National Football League had asked the networks not to show those images because they might be offensive to some people. And then you had a related issue, which was that some people, some football fans, were upset about members of competing teams praying together because that would somehow undercut the reality of the viciousness of football and they're supposed to be enemies and all this other stuff. And of course, what were they praying in those circles? This gets us into the fact that as much as the media from time to time wants to focus on whether or not players are praying for victory or praying that someone misses a field goal or praying this or praying that, if you've ever interviewed people related to this topic, you know that 99.9% of the players are praying that people will not be injured or they are praying that they will do their best or they're praying for protection, etc., etc. So this is a very important subject. It's been around a long time. It does not just exist in the National Football League. We've seen controversies involving church-state issues with it occurring with public high schools, etc., etc. It's a big story, and this time, the video live on Monday Night Football, this wasn't going away. I don't think I've ever heard a sports announcer hmm. pray. And this was obviously impromptu, and the producers yeah. were probably waving their hands and tearing I, off their headsets. <laughs> but uh, what did you make of that? Well, first of all, he didn't give them a whole lot of time to say no, did he? At the same time, we already by that point had the strong presence of NFL players, former players, coaches, etc., beginning to talk about prayer in ways that it had already permeated the, the television culture by that point. Marcus Spears, one of the two people who was sitting there on the set at that time, Marcus Spears had been talking about prayer openly for quite some time. On CNN, you had Ben Watson, an outspoken Christian and pro-lifer, doing everything but giving his testimony on CNN, live on the air, saying, you know, to each one of us, we don't know when we might die, and that's an issue with eternal consequences, and you need to think about it. So, you know, an NFL, former NFL star looking out of the screen of CNN, talking about coming very close to giving an altar call on the air, this was a remarkable situation. And I don't think the producers of live TV thought they could make it go away. You just had too many voices, and some of them so prominent. Retired Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy on NBC, the ever-loud and ever-present Stephen A. Smith on ESPN, who's someone who's talked about his faith under a number of circumstances. <laughs> this was a tsunami and they weren't stopping it. Now, this 
cannot be seen, and I don't want to get cynical here, but we, this cannot be seen apart from the context of what it means and has meant in the past for various NFL players to take a knee on the field. Yeah, right. Well, if I could, let's back up to what I think is one of the most important test cases in all of this. And pre-Tim Tebow, Tim Tebow's in elementary school or maybe not, I don't know how old Tim Tebow was in 1988. But I was a reporter in Denver at that time. And the Denver Broncos were headed to the Super Bowl where they were going to play the Washington Redskins. That Now the team, the Washington, what are they now? Commanders, Commodores, Capitalists? I, I don't know. But the football team. Football team. They were a football team like a like a uh, now that the Bri- commanders a, a, a British yeah the commanders they were like the British or the European soccer teams they were just a football team anyway they went off there and I wrote a detailed memo to my editors before the Super Bowl in which I argued that if the Denver Broncos were not a religion the state of Colorado didn't have one and that I argued with no sarcasm at all that I should be a member of the Super Bowl coverage team for the Rocky Mountain News, where I was the reporter at that time as covering religion. And they all laughed and thought that was hilarious. And then the biggest story of that Super Bowl ended up being a controversy about coaches Dan Reeves and Joe Gibbs, both outspoken Christians, huddling their two teams up for a prayer breakfast before the game. And everybody freaked out that the two Super Bowl teams are going to be getting together before the game to pray for each other. And that's all, you know, here we go. The whole thing began. You know, they're supposed to be combatants. Was this compromising the game? So here I am sitting back in Denver having to cover the story by telephone because they hadn't sent me to the game. And they're, you know, the, the reporters who were there, all from parts of the newsroom with travel budgets, I should say cynically, they're all calling me wanting to know names of people to, to get, you know, to call up and do interviews with and who are the proper sources and who are you going to be talking to? Well, I interviewed someone I consider to be a pretty high authority on these matters. I called up Tom Landry of the Dallas Cowboys, former for years president of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and one of the most sobering and low-key and calm, you think that's a good way to describe Tom Landry, voices in football. And Landry gave a long and very detailed interview, which I wrote up as a hard news story, on what are these guys praying for and what are they not praying for. And that's a serious subject. And we got it into the newspaper then because it's kind of hard to deny the Super Bowl when your local team is a part of it. So... Once again, you get to the symbol of kneeling, and there are other cases we can talk about. Tim Tebow, of course, what is Tim Tebow praying for? How many times did you see that people say that Tim Tebow, after a game, was kneeling and thanking God that he won? Okay, well, what was he thanking God for after he lost? You know, nobody seemed to want to ask that question, and they didn't seem to think they could talk to Tim Tebow about it all that much. To me, one of the most important cases of prayer and kneeling was related to the different levels of controversy about Black Lives Matters and even the famous case of Colin Kaepernick 
and the players kneeling during the national anthem, which was, here's a story that's on front page of every newspaper in the United States. And what nobody ever seemed to bring up is that some of the players were kneeling in protest, some of the players were kneeling in sympathy, and some of the players openly said they were kneeling and praying for the controversy and praying for unity and praying for healing. And you had people like God's linebacker, the famous headline from the cover of Sports Illustrated, Ray Lewis of the Baltimore Ravens, openly talking about the fact that if you, if you looked at him carefully, he was on one knee with all the players. When the time came for the actual demonstration, he put down on both knees. And if you watch the video, he's very openly praying. Did anybody ask him about that? Did anybody ask him what he was saying? No. The same thing happened again with the Black Lives Matters protests, in which you had players with different motivations and different beliefs, but there wasn't any way to deny the religious content of some of those protests and demonstrations. But it seemed to me that people felt much more comfortable going straight to the politics of race. And by the way, we should bring it up another level here. And I mean, obviously, when you're dealing with Tim Tebow, you're dealing with a very famous white athlete identified as an evangelical, identified as openly pro-life, and all kinds of other controversies. Well, did anybody notice that Colin Kaepernick had for a number of years been a participant in the post-game prayer circles at the middle of the field with other NFL players? And so when he asked people to kneel and take part in that, this is a guy that had been in those prayer circles on his knees at the middle of NFL fields. It's not like he had to go far for an image of what he was going for. And yes, with him, it was a protest for some people. And for others, it was a protest mixed with prayer. And you can't get out of the fact that the NFL is a very powerful and dominantly African-American culture at the level of the playing field, as opposed to head coaches, general managers, etc. But you're not going to stop men who've grown up in the African-American church, usually evangelical or Pentecostal, but there have been Catholics as well. You're not going to get them to shut up if they want to talk about praying. And that's certainly a part of what we saw here. What did you find in the New York Times that interested you, Terry? Well, it's a, written as a religion story. I think that's the most important thing. The original breaking news story about the phenomenon was not bad at all, in my personal opinion, when you consider that it was given probably to a general assignment reporter with some relation to sports. I don't know that particular reporter in the name. But by the time it made it to the story that everyone was was talking about, the one that, that got all the, the attention going, the headline on that was Prayers for Damar Hamlin Show Bond Between Football and Faith. That's not a very good headline in, in my personal opinion. But they assigned that to a religion reporter with years of experience and someone whose background is Wheaton College and several other things. And I thought, frankly, it was a very fine story. It got into all kinds of aspects 
of links between sports and religion in American culture. It left some things out of it, so I would say that if it had sins, it was sins of omission rather than sins of commission. I must admit that I had kind of a laugh-out-loud moment at one point in that story when, let me see if I can find the actual language. Yeah, here, here's the language. The outpouring reveals the way that Christian faith has long been intertwined with American football culture, tied to the sport through its popularity in the Bible Belt. Well, that was the, the line that made me laugh out loud. And I went, oh, right, that explains Notre Dame. That explains BYU. That explains religious organizations in every major team locker room in professional sports. The only one I know of where I've heard any controversy about them not being there has is soccer, in particular in women's soccer. But, you know, once again, this is an old story. This is bigger than the Bible Belt. This even has church-state implications at the levels of state-funded colleges and universities and obviously junior high schools and high school teams, where we've seen that go to the Supreme Court recently. So anyway, I thought the NFL story angle in the New York Times was appropriate. I would have added two or three sentences. I think I would have said something about the powerful nature of the black church within the NFL and the fact that it would be very interesting if you counted up, if someone got, it had to take a lot of phone calls real quick, if you looked up the chaplains of the National Football League teams, I'd be very interested in knowing what percentage of the chaplains were African Americans or are African Americans. And I'd be interested in knowing what teams have more than one in several cases, I think you have a Protestant chaplain and a Catholic chaplain, and these people work together in a lot of different circumstances. It's a big, broad subject. There are facts involved. And I have far more praise for the New York Times piece than I have criticism. And I was particularly interested when some people seem to think that the New York Times coverage was negative. Whatever it was, I didn't take that away from it. What about you? Well, I thought it was very even-handed, and it kind of covered, I think it hit all the, the necessary mm-hmm. notes. There was also a piece in Christianity Today. What was that about? Well, I mean, to some degree, we're now to the point where people are starting to link the violence of sports and the trauma of sports. They're linking it, and I would say validly, to a host of other topics. One of the obvious ones is mental health. And the degree to which the controversial issue within the National Football League, and tragically, race even became involved there, you had people talking about brain injuries and the degree to which that we didn't have adequate mental health care as well as physical health care for athletes involved in this sports through the years. That's a good way to follow up on this story, and I, I think perfectly valid of course. But, you know, our church is talking more about mental health issues in this age, especially, you know how much I think about this, the issue between smartphones and some of the pandemic that we see running through our young people in terms of depression and body images and gender issues and all kinds of things. 
But there's places where this story can go, and I thought the CT piece, as you would expect, coming from an evangelical perspective, I thought that showed several of the valid places the story could go from now. I also think at some point, maybe before the Super Bowl, some people need to pause and talk about the mystery of prayer itself. I mean, everybody's saying, God answered the prayers, and that's why Damar was healed so quickly. I mean, one week after he's seconds from death, lying on a football field, he's released from the hospital in Cincinnati. I mean, this was amazing, although not all that uncommon from the type of injury that he suffered, the blow to the chest that sometimes can lead to a stopped heart. I thought there was some very good medical reporting on that topic, by the way. I was not aware that the most common people suffering from this blow to the chest, electroshock, stopping of the heart, are young athletes between the ages of 12 and 16, and the most predominant sports where it occurs is youth lacrosse. People being hit without proper padding and everything, being hit in the chest with you know, a lacrosse ball flying at the speed of an NFL fastball hitting them in the chest. So, I mean, there are medical, there are mental health, there are a lot of different issues that go out of this, but I'd be willing to read some stories about what Christians wrestle with, with the mystery of prayer itself. Because I guarantee you there are NFL players, coaches, chaplains, etc., who are articulate on this topic. I have never done an interview with a chaplain to a major or college football team in any sport where the interview was not fascinating, interesting, and it didn't raise valid subjects. If they go back to this well, they will find deep waters. Was there ever a time when religion was relevant in the National Football League? <laughs> when was it not? If you go back, I mean, like I said, with Notre Dame and Nuke Rockney, and religion has been a part of sports forever. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the movie Chariots of Fire and the concept of Britain of the muscular Christian when evangelicals began looking for a way to have a positive way of expressing their faith, they turned to athletes and they turned to Olympic athletes. And they, the whole concept that men might consider topics of prayer and repentance and salvation more attractive coming through the mouth, so to speak, of a, quote, muscular Christian, unquote. That's decades old, maybe centuries old. I don't know how old, but it's always been there. Any story on this subject needs at least a paragraph or two noting that this story and controversies about this story have been around for some time. Let me give you one other case study that I thought deserved more attention. And that was back in 2014 or so, where we had a controversy in the NFL about a player, the all-pro at that point level quarterback, Russell Wilson. And Russell Wilson is a stunningly articulate and inspirational leader, et cetera, on a number of different levels. And apparently there was a division within his locker room over his public image as this married man talking openly about his faith. 
And you began to have Charles Barkley, and you had some other people. Barkley was praising Wilson, I would stress. You had people openly use the phrase that Russell Wilson was in trouble with some members of his locker room because, quote, he wasn't black enough, unquote. And if you read between the lines of what some people were saying, it was very clear that there were issues of morality, personal behavior, marriage, sexuality, religion, and all of that was somehow tied up with the fact that Russell Wilson was apparently too nice a guy and too clean and maybe too Christian to have cred. And I thought that was a story that was deserving of coverage, but the racial issue of that was so explosive that I don't think some people are willing to stop and say, I'll bet if we went to some African-American players on both sides of this debate in the NFL, I bet you that religion is a part of the component of this controversy. So rare is the year at Get Religion, we don't end up with some kind of coverage about religion and the NFL and the press, frankly, being unwilling to ask many questions about it. As someone who cheers for the Baltimore Ravens after living in the Baltimore area for a dozen years through two Super Bowls and whatever else, I have just like an entire folder of stuff at Get Religion about the press in Baltimore struggling to handle the overt religion faith of many religious faith, Christian faith, of many people on that team, including <laughs> head coach Harbaugh, who is Catholic, but boy, does he sound like an evangelical when he gets rolling. And looming in the background is that guy, Ray Lewis, a very controversial figure for a lot of valid reasons, but someone who serves as one of many official or unofficial chaplains to that football team. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.